You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's program with Inforum and the Commonwealth Club. I'm Cheryl Evans-Davis, the Executive Director of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission, and I'm pleased to be moderating today's program. I am beyond honored to be in conversation with renowned civil rights activist, host of MSNBC's Politics Nation, founder of the National Action Network, and author of the new book, Righteous Troublemakers, Untold Stories of the Social Justice Movement in America, Reverend Al Sharpton. Paying tribute to those members of the civil rights movement whose stories have not been given due recognition, the book is a testament to the connections, relationships, and individuals that the movement was built upon and sustained by. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask the Reverend your questions too, so um, please be sure to put those in the chat. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So with that, let's get started. First, I just, I can't state enough how much um, Reverend Sharpton, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you and to be in your presence and to um, have this conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Cheryl, and I'm very happy that you're hosting it, and I look forward to a very robust and informative conversation. Yeah, I, ha I have to tell you, I recently, um, a dear friend of mine who is the assessor recorder in San Francisco, Joaquin Torres, told me about, not told me, I've heard of James Cohn over the years, but he talked to me about some of the, some of his books, and I've been reading them, and I just, I'm going through your book, and I'm having flashbacks of, you know, the gospel is black power, or black power is gospel, or the, the pedagogy, you know, this idea of the oppressed. So I, I have so many questions. And at the same time, I recently read um, some of the, the sermons in Strength to Love by um, Dr. King. And so to know that you are um, rooted and grounded in that truth is just all throughout this book. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to just, I did have moments of emotional, um, just feelings and, 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 and as we start, I just wanted to ask you, even the process of writing this, was this in some way um, therapeutic or cathartic? Is this just so rich with stories? Yeah, it, it was cathartic uh, uh, in the sense that uh, I'd say in the book, early in the book, that uh, we had in the middle of the George Floyd movement, uh, I was asked to do uh, the eulogy at both his funeral in Minneapolis and in uh, Houston. Uh, when it happened, his family and uh, attorney Ben Crump had reached out to me and uh, I'd gone into Minneapolis. We had led some of the marches and rallies. And then they asked me would I come back and do the funeral. And in the middle of the eulogy, uh, uh, Cheryl, uh, for whatever reason, it just came out of my mouth. We need to go to Washington. We need to march. We need to deal with this. Now you have to remember, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Even right. they, at the funeral, people had to be distanced. Uh, there were some stars from Hollywood. Kevin Hart was there. You name them was there. And I just announced this march. Martin Luther King III was on the front row. He and I worked together very uh, uh, cooperative with Nash Action Network. And we worked with his uh, group uh, and Drum Mage Institute. And he looked at me like, what is he talking about, March to Washington? We have no plans. We have no budget. Uh, does Nan have the ability to do it? But I announced we pulled it off. Inside of 60 days, we had 200,000 people in a pandemic who took temperatures as they came in around Lincoln Memorial. And uh, they came to get me out of the tent where we had the families. We had Ahmed Arbery's family there. We had George Floyd's family there. We had Eric Garner's family, about 15 families there in the tent and they're gonna walk with us to the stage where I'm gonna speak on the steps of Lincoln Memorial. And as I was walking, you see all these hordes of people and there was an old man, looked like he was in his eighties that kept jumping up and down in the crowd with something in his hand. And for whatever reason, it caught my eye. 
And I looked at the security guys. I said, look at that old man. What, what, what is he trying to tell us? And they said, oh, keep moving, Reverend. I said, no, get that old man. And they brought him over to me. And he showed me it was a button. And the button said, March on Washington, freedom. He said, this is a button from 1963. I was here in 63 for the March on Washington with Dr. King, and I wanted to be here with you today. And I hugged the man, and he went back into the crowd. And it haunted me, Cheryl. I said, it's guys like that. I don't know how they paid to get to Washington. I don't know how whether they stayed at a hotel. I don't know whether they ate. It's people like that that make movement. And nobody ever talks about them. And that's where I developed this idea that I wanted to write about people that I know did notable things but never got limelight. And that's why I call them righteous troublemakers. Many of us are troublemakers, but we get media. We get some notoriety. Righteous people that are those that go and know no one is going to call their name. Mm -hmm. They don't go home to see if they're on the evening news. They don't pick up the paper the next day and see if they're on the San Francisco Chronicle. They're there for the cause. And I wanted to tell some of their story. Now, I, I was moved by that description, right? Like I could see you walking into the crowd. And, and, and as you were describing that in the book, I just had that moment, too, of like when you talk about the hundreds of thousands of folks over the years, right, that have been in those spaces whose stories, but the, the part where you talk about sustaining the work and moving the work and um, the line where you say we came to stop trouble, right? Like that idea of righteous troublemakers, like that, that is trouble, right? When you are trying to stop it, you, you're causing trouble for somebody else. It's good trouble, as John Lewis would say. Right. And and see, I, I think, you know, the the... the the whole uh, way of naming people troublemakers is like saying putting your knee on a man's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds is not trouble. But if I come to town and say, let's march, that's trouble. Right. Or shooting a guy jogging in Brunswick, Georgia, and killing him, that's no trouble. But if we come and force a trial, that's trouble. So even the idea of what is a troublemaker, mm -hmm. and in many ways we're trouble breakers called troublemakers mm -hmm. on a righteous call. It's really a narrative shift of, of sorts, right? Like you are changing how we see that, how we do that, and how we respect it in so many ways. Right. The idea of it. So the other piece that um, in the beginning, one of the stories, the as you talk about Darnella Frazier and you talk about just so much of this, just as you get into it, you unpack it and you just see the humanity of people, but also the vulnerability and how they put themselves out there, right? For the good of the people and that challenge and that people are doing that every day and it, it just has gone unnoticed. You look at Donella Frazier, for example, I write about in the book, the young lady who filmed mm -hmm. the original video did not come from the police uh, uh, body camera, came from Donella Frazier, who was taking her little niece to the store and she saw this, police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck and started filming it. And her started filming it and her cell phone made others stop and start filming it. She just innately felt this is wrong. What is going on here? She didn't study political science somewhere. She wasn't a member of my group, National Action Network or the NAACP. She's just an ordinary girl that said, wait a minute, this is wrong. Let me record this. I don't even think she knew what she was going to do with the recording. I remember when we came up to the uh, repast after the funeral in Minneapolis, and I met Darnell and her mother. They had to move out of their house and to a motel because they were under threat. Can you imagine this young lady filmed a policeman who ended up convicted of murder, and they threatened her like she did something wrong? I wanted to tell her story because it showed a real courage that this young lady had. And she stood up. I don't believe there would have been a George Floyd uh, case conviction if it wasn't for Donnella Frazier. And you talk a little bit about the changing of the tides. And, and I do want to say this part here. This is where it like really struck me when you say, you know, God lifted up these sacrificial lambs 
so we could do his bidding in their names and in their honor. Just how heavy that weight is and how these people stepped into that and to do that. And you talk about, there have been people that did um, the videos and filming before without necessarily the same um, support that Darnella ended up with. Exactly right. Uh, for example, when when uh, uh, Attorney Crump and uh, Felonis Floyd, who was uh, uh, one of George's brothers, uh, who I write about also in the mm -hmm. book, uh, when they called me right after it happened and asked me would I go to Minneapolis and try to help organize because they didn't want to see the violence. And it was only a day or so after that uh, George had been killed. Immediately, I thought of Eric Garner's mother because Eric Garner, who was choked by New York City policemen and killed, they never indicted those cops. They never got to court. And there was a film there. There was a video there uh, 12 times. But Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe. And the policeman kept him in that chokehold. And I thought about Eric's mother and I said, man, it's a pandemic. I wish I could have been sort of go with me to connect how these stories are together. Because I by then had seen Darnella's video where Eric was saying, I mean, where George was saying when Eric said, I can't breathe. So I called Miss Gwen Carr, and I, who's the mother of Eric Garner. And I said, Gwen, uh, did you see this video out of uh, Minneapolis? She said, I saw it. I said, I'm trying to find a way to get there because it's the pandemic. A lot of flights have been canceled, airports. Right. She said, my bag's already packed. Let me know. And I, mm. black billionaire. And I said, I know you know about what happened in Minneapolis. Would you do me a favor and let me use your private plane? He said, it'll be there at 10 in the morning and take you where you want to go. And she and I flew in his plane to go do the first rally. Mm -hmm. And then uh, flew back to New York that night. And again, we are risking because everybody's like locked down. We're literally in August now doing a lockdown. And uh, we flew back. He gave it to us to, for the funeral. And Tyler Perry gave us a bigger plane to bring the family in from Houston. Because what a lot of people didn't know is that George was the only family member in Minneapolis. All of the brothers and sisters lived in Houston or North Carolina. So we had to bring them in. So we had the logistics of we're moving in a pandemic. We're doing all of this as people are all over the world starting to march. And we're trying to stay focused on taking care of the family. The one, one thing people don't understand, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, is that when a policeman is accused of a crime, or violating policy, they have the union to back them up. And the union provides them with resources and lawyers, and if they need uh, therapy, whatever they need. The victims don't have any of that. Mm -hmm. So what National Action Network tries to do is be that institution for the victim, help move them around, help them if they need somebody to give them uh, some advice on how to handle interviews and book them, logistics help them with, many of them have to take off work, so we try to give them funds so they can pay their bills. You can't fight an institution like a police union as an individual. You need another institution to do that. So people think, I just come in and jump on TV, and that's that. We do all, that's why the families remain so lawless. We do everything for them that the unions do to, for the police. Well, you know what I appreciated in the, the story? Two things. One, um, as you're talking throughout the book, but one of the things that I really appreciated was you making this distinction about um, your own self-worth, right? And this idea that at some point in time, you, you arrive to a place where other folks think that, you know, their validation now makes you feel like you are more uh, important. And, and I love your response to them. Like you haven't decided whether, you know, they've arrived, whether you want to be accepted by them. And I think that, that that is important in this work, the self-validation and self-worth that you bring to the space. No, you, you've got to uh, figure out early in your life what are your values and what's important to you. Uh, I remember Leslie McSpiden, who uh, is the mother of Michael Brown, who was killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, she got up at a rally one night and stunned me. She said uh, that she never will forget Mark Twain said the two most important moments in your life is the moment you're born and the moment you find out why you were. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I tease her, because we all, like I said, I work with these families even now. I'm Diallo's family and I talk all the time. And that's happened 20 years ago. 
because you become family. I know their kids, they don't mind all of that. And I teased Leslie, I said, I never thought I'd hear you in the middle of a rally in Ferguson quote Mark Twain, but it's an appropriate quote because people that shunned us as activists, marching about police brutality, marching about racial violence, marching about affirmative action, marching about LGBTQ rights. Once I ran for president, became host of a TV show and all that, they said, oh, well, you know, we can accept certain things with you now, Reverend Al. Well, the, first of all, I'm still marching. I'm still doing the rallies. I'm still doing the eulogy. I'm not stopping anything I did. And what makes you think I need your acceptance? The question is whether I want to be in your company. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how intelligent people could be faced with these kinds of social crises and not be involved and have this elitist attitude like they can judge who's accepted. Well, put, keep me on the unacceptable list if that's the price I have to pay. It's, you know, you go through and you talk about that in the same the same spirit with with um, with Colvin and Parks, right? This idea of who's acceptable, who's um, a, we're able to kind of use to advance the work. And even when you talk about Hosea Williams, this idea of we're all needed in this work. Yeah, you know, uh, when I wrote the Calvin, uh, Park, Claudette Calvin, many people, I would venture to say most people, don't know that there was this young lady in Montgomery, Alabama, that refused to give up her seat in the front of the bus nine months before Rosa Parks did in Montgomery. And the Black community leadership, many preachers, mm-hmm. I might add, pastors, did not want to fight and make a symbol out of Claudette because she was dark-skinned and she was pregnant and wasn't married. So in came the class thing. And I don't think a lot of times, Cheryl, we want to talk about Mm -hmm. some of the class stuff that we have in our own community. Rosa Parks was inspired by Claudette, did it nine months later. She was light-skinned, married. She was the model. Fred Gray, who's a lawyer for Rosa Parks, was also the lawyer for Claudette. He was beyond that. And one of the reasons why that story hit home to me, I didn't come from a family of preachers. Many of the ministers that have been in civil rights are the second, third, or fourth generation preachers. My father was not that. And my father left when I was 10. And my mother had to raise me on uh, welfare and food stamps, my sister and I. So I didn't have the pedigree and the lineage of a lot of the high-profile civil rights preacher leaders had before me. And you face class things then. I remember when I was 18, a guy joined my youth group. He got killed. His daddy was a big entertainer. His daddy took me like his son. He was James Brown, the godfather. So I remember a lot of the ministers that I was around in civil rights looked down to James Brown, the gut bucket. You know, they were in this refined thing. But James Brown was who we liked. So I think that what I wanted to raise there was all of this, you got to qualify to be a victim, have to qualify to be a leader. You know, uh, we went our way to Washington one day. Uh, James Brown had made an appointment to go to the White House to lobby for Martin Luther King's birthday to be a holiday, 1982. And on the plane, James Brown said to me, Reverend, I said, yes, sir. he never called everybody by their uh, surname. He never called them by their first name. He was very much into, you know, you got to be respected. And uh, I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to do your hair like mine. I want people to see you. you like my son. They reflection to me. And I did. And I kept my hair like this all my life since then. Because this was the first man in my life that mm-hmm. validated that I was worth something. He wanted me to be like him. He one of the biggest entertainers in the world. He gave me what my father did. So which is why later in life, people took a man. Why you cock your head? It was my personal bonding with James Brown. And I say all that to say that it was getting beyond this needing for acceptance and validation for others that also inspired me to write this book about Claudette Colvin, who was as important as Rosa Parks. Paulie Murray, who was an attorney that wrote some of the most insightful legal stuff that Thurgood Marshall used, and they would not exalt her because she was gay and a woman. I wanted to write a book about them because I was them, because I didn't fit the prototype of what a, quote, 
civil rights leader was supposed to fit. You know, Carl Hare out of the uh, North, out of the hood, didn't go to, you know, the Ivy League school. That should not qualify you uh, or not qualify you to be a freedom fighter. It is whether you're committed, whether you're disciplined, and whether you're going to fight for the people. I know plenty of people that are Ivy League trained, got the right pedigree and the right lineage, and don't do anything. Well, I mean, that you hit on some of this, and that was part of what I, I took. You, you referred to Kimberly Crenshaw and the idea of intersectionality. And one of the things that I, I really appreciated, especially in this this era that we're in now is that you call out, right? Like these pieces of the intersectionality, like you just said, the classism, colorism, you know, the, the sexism, all of these different things that do exist that almost create the division within, within the race that makes it complicated to advance some of the work as well. And Cheryl, people play in those divisions to divide us, to politically break us down. So they can make us uncomfortable with each other or feeling uh, superior to each other based on these fictitious uh, walls, uh, then they can, through the gap, do what they have to do. So I'm a Baptist minister, been a born preacher, and all the way now till I'm in my 60s. But that doesn't mean I can't work with people that are Muslim or people that are atheists. Because if we believe in the same values and principles, how we get there is our business. How we intersect, as Crenshaw said, that's the strength we have. On the right wing, or uh, on the right, I should say, they are, the, are not all monolithic. They don't have the same faith, the same belief, the same lineage. But whether it is one of the, whether it's William Buckley or Jerry Farwell, they get together to deal with the same way that uh, they want to block affirmative action or block certain voting rights. And we've got to be able to deal the same way the only way to deal with it is to put it out front, expose it so people have to deal with it, rather than the unspoken, oh, we don't want to talk about that. We need to talk about it. So we stop these uh, divisions and build a movement that's going to stop these inequalities and these injustices. So, you know, I, I do want to ask, because the, you've been doing this work, it is a heavy lift and you are working, you know, you talk about the eulogies and the families and the folks that you meet. How, how do you take care of yourself? How do you practice self-care? You know, uh, it, it, I started uh, several years ago, a whole kind of work on me. I changed my diet, I'm a vegetarian. I work out every day, I lost a lot of weight and I start meditations in the morning. So I do the Baptist ministry prayer in the morning, but I also meditate. Because it is a lot on you. You know, at first you're running from here to there and and then you uh, uh, kind of not think about it. But then all of a sudden it all comes down. And uh, in the last year, I, I did the eulogies for George Floyd. I did the eulogies on several other cases. Uh, about 12 people killed by police, including I was just out west with this young uh, lady from Chile, 14-year-old that was shot with a police bullet ricocheting going through the uh, door of a dressing room. And it, at so many times you look at these bodies, I don't care who you are, it's going to bring you down. And that's why I go back to, if I'm not going to do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to have the resource? And who can put a limelight on this to expose it? And you find yourself trying to talk yourself into it. But if people think that, they get tired of seeing me out there. They are not more tired than me saying they killed somebody else. It's almost like once you get down, you go back into another situation. I will never forget, Cheryl, we were in the uh, family room at the Minneapolis courthouse listening to the summation of the trial of Derek Schultz, the policeman that had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And someone came in the room and pulled uh, Ben Crump in our side and said, a policewoman just killed a young man named Dante Wright 10 miles from here. I mean, we weren't even out of the trial. Mm -hmm. And this police, you would think they in summation on a trial right there in their county of a policeman and that they would be on extra good behavior. Kill this boy at a traffic stop. We waited for court to be over that day and went and met with the parents 10 miles ahead and said we would help them 
you know, we helped to get the funeral done and all of that. I ended up doing that eulogy a day after the conviction of Derek Chauvin. So Derek Chauvin, who we didn't know how the verdict was going to be, found guilty of murder. Everyone's happy. We go back to the hotel, tears streaming down our eyes, national, international media. And then I had to get up the next morning and go to Brooklyn Center to preach the funeral of another victim. And that's your life. And you only do that if you're committed. And that's what people I write about in that book, they were committed. Because you can't stop until you change the system that keeps allowing this to happen without penalty and accountability. The the idea of that commitment and that, you know, when you talk about um, the spiritual calling, right, that even of, of a Ben Crump or of um, Eric Garner's mom, that there was something in that. And, and I think about your um, your story, both of Mamie, um, Mobley, Mamie Teal Mobley, and um, even the stories you talk about Washington Temple or the breadbasket. Like, I think there is something, you know, I've said this before, there is something about the foundation of the faith and culture of black folks that helps to seed some of that strength. And, um, you know, I, I, I loved how you talked about you, you knew you wanted to be a preacher from early on, like that was poured into you. And this idea that, you know, you weren't as impressed with Thurgood Marshall as others, right? That there was something about the spiritual that's always called you to this work, but also to the space. So when I was very young, uh, even before my father left, I would always uh, look at uh, those in ministry that were in social activism. I loved Adam Clayton Powell. And I'm like 19 years old, which, you know, I'm already a boy preacher in our church, God in Christ. And, uh, but I wasn't uh, attracted to the side of preachers that were doing the pastoring big churches. I was attracted to the activist side. I, 10, 11 years old, was reading about uh, Cecil Wheat out there in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, these were the kinds of preachers I grew up, I wanted to be like that. And uh, Jesse Jackson ended up a mentor of mine. I, when I was 12, my mother brought me to him. He was 25, 26. He was twice my age then. So he was like a father figure that later became a big, a big brother figure because as you grow older, the gap of 13 years is different than father to son. So I knew what I wanted to be, and I never changed that. I never let nobody talk me out of it. I, I remember uh, some of the guys that were growing up with me in the ministry would say, well, how are you going to make a living out there doing civil rights ministry? I said, I don't know, but this is what I believe you're supposed to do. And that's what I would Ben Crump. Ben Crump is an excellent lawyer. I write about that. I'm sure Ben Crump never thought he would become the face of the civil rights legal uh, kind of profession and how he's going to make a living. I think if you decide what your life is, your living will come from that decision. There's no way anybody could have told me, you know, you, the right wing can talk about I'm an opportunist and all of that. How's anybody going to tell me that doing what I would do, that I would one day host a cable national show or a syndicated radio show? I mean, how could I? There wasn't even MSNBC in existence when I started this. So they will always assign you motives because it shows you their value. It doesn't show you out. No, and I think reading the book was helpful for me because you give all these things that the stories of um, just the the pushback that folks receive, and yet it becomes very clear you are not in this for the money, right? Like there's no way that you have gone through the things that you have gone through. Similarly, like I appreciated you calling out even that Ben Crump, like how can he do an ambulance trade set, right? Like I think that those the stories are so helpful to give the bigger context of what it is that people are experiencing and that there's no m amount of money that can absolve the, the things that have happened over time. Well, uh, on the ambulance chasing thing, let's go back to Ahmed Aubrey. When Ahmed was killed and the police came, they said that this was self-defense. The local prosecutor refused to arrest those three guys. That's when they came to people like uh, Ben Crump and Ben Crump brought me in and we started raising the issue. And then the local activists in Brunswick was really consistent and persistent to the point where the governor brought in another prosecutor and they got the case. So 
We weren't chasing the ambulance. We were the ambulance. The ambulance came and left it the way it was. And that's what people don't understand. If we did not come, then who was going to stand up for an Aubrey or an other case? And I think that 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 is what is really crazy to me. And then when I look about, like me, I, there was a case in New York in uh, 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 89, uh, 1989, Yusef Hawkins. Young man killed in a section of Brooklyn, Vincent Hurst, where they didn't want blacks there. I led the marches out there protesting, calling for the killers to be arrested. One Saturday, a man ran out of the crowd, stuck a knife in my chest, a few inches from my heart. How much you gonna pay me to get stabbed and, and almost killed? My daughters was four and five years old. I mean, how much you gonna pay me to get stabbed? Or uh, uh, days that we spent, I once spent three months in jail for leading a protest in Puerto Rico around Navy exercises. How much you gonna pay somebody to lose their freedom for three months? So the absurdity of the attack is not to vindicate me, it's to show people made sacrifices, even though they know they're gonna get maligned, even though they know they're gonna get attacked. And I I know that the the, the Fox News of the world is gonna call me names. You do it because you have to do it because that's who you are. It just, the stories are so rich and it, it really chronicles what you're talking about, this idea of what's in you and um, the story of Ruby Bridges. And when you talk about um, Dr. Coles, um, that part there where he is trying to figure out why is she praying right for these folks? And yeah. it made me think of Cone talking about a, a we need a theological revolution because he was basically saying we need more people to be like these folks are. You know, one, one story I tell, and I wish people would get the book. I don't want to give them everything, but I have to tell this story since you brought up Ruby Bridges, is that this young lady brought to integrate this school, and every day mobs of whites is outside calling her name, calling the uh, federal uh, marshal's name that's ushering her in. And she had one white teacher that would sit in school and teach her. And she, every day, go to school, every day go to school. And the part that really got to me is that one day she was coming into school and they were really out there just causing a ruckus, calling her the N-word and everything. And she turned and, and uh, said something, her lips were moving. And when she got inside, her teacher said, uh, Ruby, you all right? Yeah. She says, uh, I saw you say something back to the crowd. She said, what do you mean? No, I saw your lips moving. What, what did you say to the crowd? And this little girl said, oh, I wasn't talking to them. I was talking to God. And when I had researched that story, I put in the book, tears came in my eyes, because that's the kind of faith and commitment you have to have, that you can ignore the noise of imminent danger, because you feel that spiritual connection will just bring you through. And as long as you're talking to another worldly kind of thing, whichever way you approach it, you can handle uh, what's going on. And we're at a time that I wanted this book to say that because we're at a time, if you can see people storm the capital of the United States and threaten the life of their vice president from their party and the speaker of the house just rummaging through the halls, where's Nancy Pelosi? If we're dealing with this kind of open hate, you need to have some spiritual kind of cover that you can deal with this stuff without being infected by it. So in the middle of a pandemic, we're in the middle of all this hate, we're in the middle of all this backlash, and unless you are prepared for this mentally and spiritually, you can easily succumb. And these, right, these troublemakers was in situations worse than this, and they didn't succumb. Well, it, it's interesting because one of the first questions we have here is says, I marched with MLK in Chicago in 1963. I never thought I would still be in a civil rights struggle in 2022. Do you agree? I definitely agree. You know, uh, when uh, Martin Luther King, as I said, one of my mentors was Reverend Jackson. When he went to Chicago uh, to show that the Southern movement could work in the North, uh, I've seen the videos. I was very close with Mrs. King and Martin III and I worked close together. And I've seen the videos of where Dr. King had, they threw a, a brick at him, Gage Park in Cicero, and uh, when they were leading marches for open housing. And he said that he never saw the hate 
in the South you saw in Chicago. And here you're talking about dizzy marches with 63, 66 in Chicago. Here we are in 22 fighting for voting rights protection. So on one hand, you could say, when does it end? I'm tired of this. We've been doing this 50 years. On the other end, if we stop, we did 50 years for nothing. We can't stop. Mm, that's deep. That's deep. I, I just think that that I'm like, you know, permeating in that because that is right. Like if you stop now, it's, it's you know, as the old folks used to say, too close to give up now, you know? That's right. Um, another question. Do you think America is still going through a white lash from the Obama years or are we going through something else? I think that in part, we are going through a white lash. If you study American history, it was always a step forward, pushback. So we've had slavery. Finally, uh, Lincoln reluctantly allowed blacks to get in the Union Army and help to win against the Confederates. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freed uh, the blacks in the Confederate States, January 1st, 63. Uh, go into Reconstruction, Backlash, Ku Klux Klan, White Citizens Council, Supreme Court with decisions that there was no rights to any Blacks, had that they were bound to respect, Plessy versus Ferguson, and all of that. So Backlash, all the way then to the 20th century, NAACP founded and Urban League founded, early part of the century, Backlash. Uh, then you get to the Civil Rights Era, uh, where Brown versus Board of Education, 54, sit-ins by students, Martin Luther King emerged, boycotts, backlash, where we start seeing after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the backlash comes, don't forget, 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, 68 the Open Housing Act, then all of a sudden there are urban riots, police brutality, and the backlash, Richard Nixon got elected that year in 68, 68. The end of the 60s, with all that we talked about civil rights, ended with Richard Nixon. So fast forward to your question. We get a black president, Barack Obama, 2008, reelected in 2012, backlash, Donald Trump. I knew there would be a backlash after Obama got in, and I worked closely with Obama. I didn't know it would be Donald Trump, who I knew in New York as, as anything other than presidential. But there's always a backlash, and you have to be prepared for a backlash, which is why you never let your guard down. Yeah, in, in that same kind of vein, in terms of like history repeating itself, and you talked a little bit about it in the book. Um, this next question talks about the filibuster, which you talked about in the book, which you which you said you know King talked about you know doing away with. Um, and so this question is about um, what do you think about the filibuster, which you know, and, and the people. Uh, the senators who are defending it? Well, I think the filibuster, I'm against it totally. But the least they could do is do what they did with the debt ceiling earlier this year. They found a way to carve around it and uh, said that we've got to deal with the debt ceiling. They carved around it to deal with some judicial nomination. So why can't you carve around it for something as basic and fundamental in a democracy as protecting the right to vote? I think the filibuster should be eradicated, period. And 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 when you ask what I think about those who are defending it, the defense, and, and we've been in Washington several times, had a big march there, 50,000 people in August and other rallies since then. And as we met with some of the senators, including Manchin and them, they said, well, if we change it, the Republicans are going to use it against us if they ever get back in power. Does anybody honestly believe that Mitch McConnell is not going to use it, whether the Democrats use it or not. I mean, can you even fantasize that Mitch McConnell is going to say, you guys didn't use it, so I'm going to honor that you didn't do it. There's nothing honorable about these guys. They're going to do it. They did it. They stalled, stalled a presidential nomination of a Supreme Court justice for over a year to put who they wanted on that bench. And you don't think they would go around the filibuster? So this is the, I think this is the, the conversations, like you talk about it in the book, and then I think I compared it to when um, Coretta Scott King refers to and says that Dr. King believed in the visionary 
and the practical, right? And I think you also, these stories that you share in the book are, are really highlighting the need for both. And so when people ask questions like that, the question is, we can have this vision of a utopia where they do, as you say, what's right, right? Like, well, oh, I'm not going to do it because you you didn't do it, and I'm not going to do it because you didn't do it. But that's not really how it, it, it happened. Exactly. Well, see, one of the things I try to say to a lot of the young people in our organization, National Action Network, and uh, activists as I go to certain campuses and all, is that you must be committed, but you can't be a purist, where it's got to be your way and any uh, deviation, any kind of way of getting things done, if it's not to the letter, you're not going to do it, because then you're not going to affect society. And I think that you've got to be willing to be practical, practically practical in the sense of executing your vision. I'm not saying lose your vision, but see how you can get it put in place. And that's why I work with the Congressional Black Caucus and the Progressive Caucus. They're in the Congress doing the legislation. We're in the streets and in the media doing the public, uh, trying to deal with public opinion. One should compliment the other, not be competitive to one another. So I'm out there leading the marches. I'm out there on television and radio. I And, and they're in uh, the, the Congress, as they're in the Senate right now, dealing with legislation. They're not my enemy. Why am I calling them a name? Why are y'all out here marching? Because they're legislators. They ought to be in their legislators. Everybody has a role, and we need to let everybody do their role as long as it's coming toward the same end. That's the part I kept coming back to. And I think that that idea of everybody has a role or accepting people for who they are and not being the purest. So, you know, the, the James Meredith story, right? Like, again, all these folks in there that people have to get this, this book. I, I'm going to have to go back through it because there are so many names, so many pieces that, um, you know, folks are talking about the debate over critical race theory and what to talk about and where to talk about it and all of that. A lot of this stuff, you know, I'm of a generation that if they didn't teach it to me in church, I didn't learn it. Right. right. And so there's such richness here. But I really think this idea of the old school, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Like, how do we drill down on that more and more? Because the, the lines, I, I, I thought about some parts of when you talked about Meredith that it sounded like all lives matter, right? But that you were saying, like, we're not gonna, we can't get caught up on some of that because we can't erase the impact that he had on the movement. Meredith did things that I may disagree with. Meredith uh, came to New York in the late 60s and ran against Adam Clayton Powell as a Republican. But that doesn't erase the fact this man went to University of Mississippi and broke down the walls uh, of, of segregation with what he did. So, He's not perfect, and neither are you, and neither am I. The stories need to be told so we can have an appreciation. I remember right after Trayvon Martin, and I was very much in the center of that case with uh, uh, Sabrina Fulton and Tracy, uh, the parents had come to me again with Ben Crump. And I remember I went to a rally in Florida, uh, in Sanford, Florida, uh, right after Trayvon happened. And a girl had, a young lady had on a T-shirt saying, this is not grandma's movement. And a lot of the civil rights guys with me said, oh, Lord, what is, what is this? And I walked over to her, I said, let me ask you something. What, what, why do you wear that? Well, I want them to know this ain't the we shall overcome generation, da, 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 da. I said, it's obvious you're younger than the we shall overcome generation. I'm not the we shall overcome generation. My generation was the no justice, no peace generation. Y'all are Black Lives Matter. I said, but why do you have to condemn grandma? Who are you playing to? I mean, who are you have to be accepted by to tell them grandma wasn't nothing? If it wasn't for grandma, my generation or your generation be there. So why we got to beat down grandma? She looked at me, she said, I said, grandma's generation. Brought us from the back of the bus to Obama being president. Why are we mad at grandma? She said, I never thought about it that way. And I think that we've got to stop all of this. Every generation picks up the ball and moves it further down the court. But you pick up the ball where the ball was dropped by the last generation. If they had not moved those yards down, you wouldn't be closer to the goal line. 
And I think that we too often play the age game and this, that. I know some young blacks that are in the right wing. Look at those young blacks that was just standing behind Trump in Arizona over the weekend talking about blacks for Trump. They are, they're the same generation that some of them talk about. This ain't grandma's movement. It is not your age, it's your agenda. Yes. Yes, and, and it's funny because you and I, after kind of getting to the end when you talk about coming full circle, I had this like moment of, I was a kindergarten teacher for a long time, so I have all these random poems in my head, but also from Black History Month in church. And I just immediately thought about bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave from Maya Angelou. That you basically are saying that this foundation, right? The work that we're doing, the work that this next generation is doing, the, the work of future change makers is built on the work of the folks that came before you. All of it is built on that. And anything that you do, anybody that studies history, it goes from one generation to the next generation. And that's how it, the continuity of history. And if you are so egomaniacal that you think movements and activism started with you and end with you, then you minimize your usefulness. We all serve our purpose and our time. And it moves on. Whether you accept it or not, it's going to move on past you anyway. The movement didn't start with you and it's not going to end when you finish Hopefully, you will be part of advancing it some uh, uh, on your watch. And that's why I wanted to write about some that did things that never got the recognition, but they did it. And because of what they did, they advanced us. We are nowhere near where we need to be, but we'd be a lot worse if it wasn't for some righteous struggle. That's right. That's right. So uh, building on that, one of the questions from um, the audience there is, is there a favorite story or person that didn't make it into the book? Wow, that's a good question. I, I probably, I'd have to ponder that one, but that's a good question. I'm sure there were two or three people that I wish I had gotten in, but I, they don't come to mind right away, but it's a great question. And I think this, this book for folks across the board, because you uncover or unpack or at least share with us um, I think, you know, the Polly Murray story and the, just as you tell the story without telling it, there's so much that I think people should read and then go do some additional research because we have been, and I do believe that we still are, I was able to speak with, speak at Glide on Sunday and have been talking about like affirming humanity and again to the intersectionality that we as a people talking about black folks are still struggling with some of our challenges within the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I talk about uh, uh, the connections there with uh, uh, with Paulie. My sister was gay, so I grew up uh, knowing the bias in the church because we were in the Pentecostal church, later as Baptist. And uh, so I knew firsthand uh, that my sister had to deal with racism, sexism, and homophobia. So I lived it in my house. So I could understand Paulie's story. And, and, and I understood the hypocrisy of a lot of people in the church, because we all knew the gay people in the church. It was like, don't act like we know. I mean, how hypocritical is that? And I think we've got to confront all of that. That is why I embraced uh, Crenshaw somewhere intersectionality. The fact that Bayard Rustin, who was the main organizer of the 1963 historic march on Washington, had to step back because he was a homosexual. It's criminal. The fact that women couldn't speak at the 63 march where King made the Ivory Green is criminal. And we've got to talk about these things so we can correct them as we go. And hopefully we correct enough that people can correct what we didn't see needed to be corrected all in the spirit of making everything move toward a more perfect union. You know, it, it, I recently had a conversation with uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder just around yeah. what you're talking about and the Great music one. and how our churches benefited from the music, but we wouldn't celebrate the people that brought the music. No, uh, Bishop Flunder is a great person. And and you're absolutely right. I, you know, like I said, I grew up a boy preaching. So we knew it every church. I toured a little while with Mahalia Jackson, the gospel great, when I was a kid. We knew in every church that a lot of the choir and the musicians were gay. 
and we love their music. We love their performative art, but we didn't love them and their life and all of that. And the hypocrisy of that, the judging of that is in my opinion, something that we needed to expose and deal with. And uh, I think Flounder is absolutely right. Well, I, I think that your, your book is a, the stories that you share in there at the beginning of unpacking some of that and coming and daylighting it because it, it has been it has been hidden for far too long. Um, let's see, we got another question. What does it mean to act with progressive integrity? I think that uh, progressive integrity is an interesting expression where you operate based on what is right what is ethical and not judgmental and do not define progressive by some purist one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, but by the goal of making a more progressive, open, fair society. And you do it with integrity. Be honest and be fair. Integrity is very important in movement because even if I don't agree with your tactic or you agree with mine, as long as I know that your word is your uh, uh, bond, as we say, as long as I know that you are who you say you are, I can deal with you. Where we break down movements is where trust is broken down. Yeah, I think that that, that you know, in San Francisco, we have the, we, you know, I can think of ourselves as progressive, but as you know, that is that is a word that does not always translate in a town with less than 6% black folks, we, but still have the same disparities in terms of who's incarcerated, our suspension right. rates, all of that. And progressive is who, to who? I mean, you know, we have it in New York. I'm progressive. Progressive for who? And I think that we've got to be able to define it in a way with integrity. I think that is very important. I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that because I often feel like, you know, here we have um, a black woman mayor who grew up right. in public housing, who who folks would often challenge um, her viewpoints. And one of the things I think folks really struggle with understanding is that historically, she was raised by her grandmother, that historically, um, you know, our older generation of black folks were much more conservative in terms of how they operated and how they functioned. But that was born out of necessity to keep their families safe. Yeah, and, and you sometimes would hear me say on some of my uh, television stuff about latte liberals, people that study uh, those of us that grew up like I did, like the mayor did, uh, uh, in poverty and on welfare and all of that. They study us, but they never were us. And they're going to speak for us and don't even understand our story. And how are you going to address a pain you didn't feel better than those that are hurt? I'm not saying you can't address it. But don't tell me to shut up and be a prop for your presentation. I'm not a prop. I'm a person. And we're going to decide together what is progressive. I am not looking for better slave masters. I'm looking for freedom. And I've told people that in coalition, that just because your style may be more inclusive, if you're giving orders, that is not a coalition. That's a co-option. You've got to respect where I'm coming from and the pain that I bring and the bearing that I bring and the raising that I bring coming out of the projects, like you talk about uh, the mayor. And I respect that you may be uh, or someone that came from means and I'm not holding that against you and we can meet in the middle. But if I've got to fit your definition of what a progressive is and check every box, then I'm only imposing myself in another situation where I'm not in charge of my own direction. Yeah, and I think that that is the challenge to get to that space and have people respect that. Uh, let's see, we got another one. What is your biggest hope for the rest of the Biden presidency? I hope that we pass uh, this Voting Rights Act some way uh, to protect the right to vote and then get to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We must have a police reform on a federal level so we don't have to go case by case. And I hope we get a fair, uh, uh, well, a vote really on the on the uh, buyback better. We've got to deal with climate change and things that is in the, the BBB. And I think that uh, he's having his press conference now. 
uh, I think that he's saying that he was elected for four years, not one. He has three years left. We need to make sure we get those done. And I intend to hold him accountable until we do. As I was going through the book and as we prepare to kind of wrap up here, one of the things that really struck me and then just thinking about the National Action Network is that I feel like what you've laid out here is also a roadmap for outreach and engagement. I think it really does help people better understand how to engage with community, how to be mindful of um, lived experiences and uh, appreciate and respect all those differences. And I, I've been looking at it going like, I think people need to read this before they go step out in community or try to do any kind of organizing to better understand um, community. No, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I wanted to lay out a lot of my experiences and then experiences of others so they can glean, so they go out at, with being clear-eyed and not feeling like this is the world is going to embrace them because they're doing the right thing. Because it's not going to be that way. You're going to face tests. You're going to face trial. You're going to face rejection because you're dealing with people that have been the victims of rejection. And I would hope this book helps to prepare you for all of that, so it is expected. It's not alone. And, and kind of as the final wrap-up question, you've said this a little bit, but, um, you know, like, how can this be used? You, you, you start off the book talking about the tactics and the tools and the lessons that folks can use. How do you see this and how do you, you know, as you share this, these stories and, and you talk about at the end of being for future change makers, but how do you see this being used or how would you like to see it being used? I'd like to see the book used by people saying, that I feel that my life is to contribute to the continued social justice movement. I feel that my life is about bringing about fairness and justice. And now that I've read other stories that I didn't know, what will my story be? I hope they leave this book saying, what will my story be? It may not be on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle or the LA Times, but it's a story. It's a story maybe only my kid will know, my cousin will know. What is my story? Everybody got a story, and part of that story is that you helped to fight to bring social justice closer to a reality in this country. And maybe just to sneak one more in there as you say that, um, this idea of the struggle for justice and doing this work, that it's not, it's not an easy walk. Right. And so that commitment and that dedication and what moved me is the commitment that you have, the commitments that you describe of other folks, the, the boldness that they have and and the spirit of it all. I, I've, I've imagined the hotel in Minneapolis when you all were in the room together and the verdict came down. You talk about the singing and the praying and the movement. I, I felt like I was in church when you described um, the name of the House of Justice and Jesse Jackson, um, you know, the language and the, the fervor which he did that. Like, how do people tap into or find that? Because you are a, a, a beacon of light to so many of these families who are struggling and you, you're, you're pouring into other folks. And I think people have got to find a way to be able to pour into other people instead of waiting to be poured into in the way that you describe these people. I think that if you're honest with yourself and open uh, that, you don't have to find the spirit. It will find you if you're open and that you want to serve. One of the scriptures that I always love is, is that Jesus said, the servant is the highest and you must want to serve and that spirit will find you. I, like I said, I was 12 years old when I joined the movement. I was a boy preacher before that. At 13, the year Dr. King was killed, I became youth director of the chapter of his organization in New York. I didn't figure out the difference between nonviolent struggle and self-defense, why I was going with Martin rather than Malcolm. I just did it. And if you open yourself up, you'll be guided. I honestly believe that in the right way. You just have to have the courage to follow the guidance. Thank you so much, Reverend Al Sharpton. I, I'm going to be... Uh, reaching out to, to National Action Network. And I definitely am interested in doing more with the book here. 
I truly believe that it is a roadmap to outreach engagement and celebration of community members. And so- Well, Cheryl, I honestly enjoyed this hour and I really would love to work with you close uh, even in the future, even beyond the book. I, I'm going to be, you, you're gonna regret saying that, but- uh, No, I won't. No, I won't. <laughs> I promise I won't. So thank you, Reverend Al Sharpton. All right, thank for you. For joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I would like to remind the audience that our um, that Righteous Troublemakers, Untold Stories of the Social Justice Movement in America can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming this year, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Cheryl Evans Davis. Thank you so much and stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.